You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Jeff Beck. And here comes episode number 11. Okay, with me today we have Michael Kanarik, the founder of Avery Games and the designer of Crown of Exile. Mike, welcome to Your Tables on Fire. Hey, thanks for having me on. We're glad to have you here. First off, uh, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself? I'm Mike. This is the second game that I've put on Kickstarter uh, under my little indie publishing label, Aviary Games, here. I've worked in games for a while. I do like marketing stuff for digital game companies, and uh, I've always designed RPGs and tabletop games sort of for fun. And a couple years ago, I had this game called Alchemy that I had a really good idea for, or I thought it was a pretty good idea, and started doing this as kind of a side project. The first question that springs to mind, the name Aviary Games, what's the story behind that? I've got two green cheek conures. They're small parrots named Momo and Lily, and they're, I don't know, I'm like a crazy bird person, I guess. <laughs> I a, a buddy who's an illustrator who, when I was starting this up, we were kind of like jokingly referring to this, like referred to my house as the aviary, because I let the birds roam around everywhere, and they're always like picking up board game pieces and stuff like that, and he did a little illustration that's our logo now, that's like one of them wearing a helmet and the other one wearing a crown sitting over a shield, like a little piece of heraldry, so that's what we came up with, and it stuck. My girlfriend at the time wanted to call it Tiny Dinosaur Games, but I went with it. <laughs> You've yet to design a bird-themed game. Is that coming up? Uh, maybe. I've got a bunch of ideas for games, but that's not currently one of them. Whenever anybody sees a game that's got birds in it, they always send me, like, I've got a text, like, once a month or so from somebody who's just like, oh, there's this new... Yeah, anytime there's a bird-themed game, I hear about it. So <laughs> they're aware that there's a lot of them already. Let's take a trip through memory lane and just tell us how you got into gaming. I, I mean, like, I've been envious of my friends who had Ataris and stuff like that since I was little, and video games were always really cool to me. But I got into role-playing games and played Vampire the Masquerade in college, and there were these cooler grad students who would always show up and bring these games like Lunch Money and Gother Than Thou and stuff. And, you know, they'd just show me these games, and I thought they were really awesome. Uh, you know, I went through the sort of regular Munchkin and Catan and eventually found my way into like this room that I'm sitting in now that's just full of like hundreds of games. <laughs> I've always been kind of like a stat guy. That's sort of why I got into marketing. So the, the more I got into that and understanding systems and, you know, the relationships between things and economies, uh, I got into Euros. That's sort of the whole trajectory. Like, I always like looking at stuff and trying to figure out how they work numerically and how numbers and systems play with each other. Would you say your interest in stats and numbers, does that influence your game design? It certainly influenced this last game. I think I took it a little bit easy in Alchemy because I was like, never really done this before. I started that one because I was sort of playing with this idea for a game that was based on a chemistry system I had written for a role-playing game. And I was kind of like, maybe this could be a standalone game. People really like it. And I got let go from my job the same day as an illustrator that I knew. And we were just kind of like, screw it, let's do this, and took that and developed it out. But I tried to keep it pretty modest. This next one, though, Crown of Exile, the one that I've got in Kickstarter now, is definitely... Uh, spent a lot of time with game balance and trying to like make something interesting that would be comprehensible but still have like as new cards come out things that would surprise people and make them have to rethink what they thought they had understood about the system are those still the games that you like to play or maybe the heavier more mathematic games 
I go all over the place. Like, I really like Terra Mystica and Agricola, things like that. But I've also been playing the crap out of uh, Above and Below recently. Might be my current favorite game. That's not a really crunchy game. Like, it's got a little bit of interesting system stuff, but it's basically like a choose-your-own-adventure that you play with friends. And it's really fun as long as you have the right people to play with. I guess with the right gaming group, a game like that is really good, but I think I could play Agricola with like people who I really didn't have a good time with in general, and the system would still be there to keep me entertained. Is there a game that you can think of that combines the two? Yeah, a really good storytelling game that also gets nice and crunchy? Ooh, I honestly can't. I think that the taste for those kinds of crunchy Euro games gives out for like what you might call like QT choose your own adventure stuff very quickly. There aren't a lot of people who I think have a taste for things that have that sort of storytelling element. There's certainly like some narrative in games. I think, you know, any good game kind of you have a sense of the game recreates whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing in the game. But, you know, then in Terra Mystica, which is great, it's sort of like this could be anything. The theme is not really strong there. Whereas the more storytelling games, it seems like the mechanics aren't necessarily focused on a great system or even great balance. It's like trying to make you feel like you're in the story with some kind of mechanic. I think Above and Below is actually the most crunchy relative to still having some good storytelling that I've ever seen. And I think that's actually why I've been playing it so much. What about, what's a really bad game or a bad game experience? Oh my god. Uh, how many people did you say listen to this? <laughs> Just so, go ahead, offend us all, it's fine. Okay, um, I have a buddy who has got a design credit on Crown of Exile who will play any game with me, and one night we got Twilight Struggle, because it's number one, actually I think it's been displaced, but it used to be number one on Board Game Geek, and we were like, we're going to play this, it's supposed to be epic, it's supposed to be like super crunchy, numbersy, and we like that, and it was like... Everything was perfect about it, except it managed to not be fun at all. That was how I felt about it. Like, it was just like, wow, this is a really clever system. Like, none of this is any fun. I'm totally bored the entire way through. That's not something that I think I would often say just because a lot of people love it. But I've also heard people say that's because nobody who's not going to love it plays it usually. You know up front that it's like a three or four hour game for only two players and that it's all about the Cold War. So if you pick it up, you probably know what you're getting into and it probably delivers on that. I had no idea what I was getting into, so I didn't like it at all. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's pretty great. I think GMT is probably, I mean, they've got the number one or number two game on Board Game Geek. They probably don't care what I say about them. I hope. So you said you've been designing games for a while now. When did that start? You know, everybody who plays Dungeons and Dragons as a little kid and whose parents won't buy them every single adventure book and stuff like that has to, in a way, design a board game where the system is already pre-written and you are just moving parts around and designing in that sense. I think that a lot of game designers that I meet are people who are like dungeon masters or ran those sorts of games at some point in time. You can even map what game they started with, with what kind of games they're designing now. Like the people who did like Palladium and GURPS games seem to be designing more numbers heavy stuff. And then people who play like Vampire the Masquerade would be making more narrative driven experiences. That was certainly my first experience. And then, you know, we got into homebrew RPGs and worked in digital games and did some work with people who were doing systems design and that kind of thing. Then, I don't know, I think at a certain point I started to get way, way more into board games. And that's when I decided to do Alchemy, which I think was the first just board game that I ever tried to make and stuck with to completion. Like, I think I have a bunch of others that are just kind of like sitting around that might have had one or two cool ideas that I was playing with, but were never going to be fully fledged, even if I had spent more time with them. Well, tell us a little more about Alchemy. Okay, uh, Alchemy is a game about mixing potions and either keeping them for victory points or taking swigs off of them, which cost you victory points, in order to mess with other people at the table who are also trying to make potions. 
it's kind of a gotcha sort of game, as you might imagine. It's a little bit heavier in terms of system than a lot of other games of that sort, but it's really just kind of like cartoonish fun with maybe a little bit of extra thinking added in. We did a Kickstarter for that that I think did pretty well. The Penny Arcade guys liked it. I certainly like it. We've got a mini expansion that came out because of one of the stretch goals, and it's just like tons of fun. We had a really good artist who did like some really hilarious and like bright and colorful potion art for like all these little things that you're trying to make. All these potions have like funny stuff going on on them. So the there's like a luck potion which looks like a slot machine, and like the spicy chili potion looks like a sriracha bottle. So it's just kind of like give you a sense of what the feel of the game is like. It's just sort of a little goofy and fun. And it won an award, isn't that right? Yeah, I brought it to the Boston Festival of Independent Games, and they won the Best Innovation Award, and that was, I'm pretty sure, 2014. And the guys at PAX wrote it up, Gabe and Tycho. It's actually got a shout-out along with Crossmaster Jr. at the end of last year's PAX, which was really, really cool to see. Yeah. And Tom Vassell at Dice Tower hated it. <laughs> well, that's not at all surprising, so... He's, he's got his tastes. He does. So with regards to either Alchemy or Crown of Exile, how did it start? Did you usually start with the theme and kind of work a mechanic into that theme or vice versa? Uh, It could go either way. But for both of these, I happen to have started with a theme. For Crown of Exile, I had this sense that I really wanted to make a game about trying to build up power, but sort of accepting risks as you got more and more. And that's really what that game is all about, is you sort of take on these quests that give you victory points the longer you can hold on to them by paying upkeep. There's an engine building part where you build up your domain and draft cards that are supposed to make a really good system that generates all the resources you need, and then take on these things that you're going to have to continue to pay for through the end of the game or else get a penalty You want to get your hands on them before your opponents do, but not before you can afford them. And you want to be careful because your opponents can kind of try to sabotage it. So that was sort of this idea of like a political struggle that was based on a bunch of people watching each other get ahead and try to either outpace their opponents or screw up their opponents, like drag them down to their level. So that was sort of theme driven, but the mechanic followed very closely thereafter. Well, let's talk more about Crown of Exile. Give us the pitch for it. Sure. In Crown of Exile, you're playing a noble, a lesser noble, one who's been not acknowledged up until this point. The capital of the kingdom that you live in is destroyed, the king is killed, and there's a sudden power vacuum. You're in a dangerous place, so there are potential peasant uprisings and revolts and all kinds of problems that spring up when the strong ruler disappears. And this is sort of your only chance to seize power. But in order to do that, you need to prove that you can rule. And in order to do that, you need to complete these quests, which basically are fixing things that are coming up that are wrong in the kingdom. So it could be that people are starving. It could be that a monastery needs protecting. Throughout the course of the game, you divide it into eight rounds, you play four cards each round, and you start out with a hand of six and can draft more, and it's not like a deck builder, it's more like a hand builder. So you've always got whatever cards you've drafted in your hand and can play them into one of these four spaces, and you decide whether you're going to add to your domain and gain more capabilities, or whether you're going to try to take on these quests, or whether you're going to try to prevent your opponents from doing what they need to in order to get ahead. It's this balancing act between building up your capabilities, acting quickly, or protecting yourself. So it's a pretty crunchy game, actually. Would you still call it a take-that mechanic? There's a take-that mechanic that's built into the whole military aspect of it, but 
we encounter two types of people, which are people who are absolutely in love with the idea of a Euro kind of thing with a very simple base mechanic, but a lot of sort of complicated things that come in. So it doesn't take long to learn. There are people who love that and love the idea of having that with a take that mechanic because it introduces something that they don't get a lot. And then there are people who do not want that out of that sort of game. There's a very simple way to take Crown of Exile and convert it to something which is really not quite multiplayer solitaire, but the only way that you can influence other players is by taking something before they get it. More like a worker placement game or any other sort of traditional Euro. I like to take that part of it. My friends and I don't take that sort of thing very personally, and it just adds to a lot of the sense of tension when, in addition to figuring out what you can afford, you have to figure out what the temperament of somebody else sitting at the table is like and whether they're going to be willing to take the time to screw you over in order to maybe get ahead themselves or maybe just drag you down to their level. How long have you been working on the game? About two years. Basically, right after Alchemy got funded, this idea started percolating and I started doing playtests with it. We had a like misfire launch in July under the name Interregnum. The game was ready at that point, certainly, but the art really wasn't. And I think that it didn't communicate to backers that it was as fully fleshed out a game as it could have been. And since then, that's given us the opportunity to add a few more things, streamline a few more things, and get what I think is pretty awesome art. Yeah, the art looks really great. I'll give a shout out to my artist, Brittany Smith, who's like actually did some work on Alchemy as well. And it's just like, I think she's a few, just a few years out of art school. And it's just like this unbelievably quick and versatile illustrator. And everybody should look her up and like her on Facebook and hire her for the projects. She's been great and like great to work with and uh, came up with this style more or less from just like vague and really poor art direction on my part, which was just like, uh, here's two things I like. Can you make a whole game out of this? And came back with was just awesome. Well, over those two years of working on it, how has the game changed? It's like almost not recognizable as what it started as. The core mechanic of you're going to take on more and more quests, it's going to give you rank and you're going to get victory points based on what your rank is at the end of every round has stayed the same. The different sort of suits of cards, you can expand into wealth and trade, you can expand into your military, your sort of subjects and your local villages and towns, or you can focus on politics, that stayed the same. But even the way that attacking works has changed a lot. The way that you take quests from other players if they can't pay for them has changed. It's like a whole different game. Only the very skeleton of it has remained the same. It just used to be so very much more complicated. And I think that that's like a thing that happens with a lot of games is that they start out and you have like a million ideas and there's one or two that you really think are going to be what's fun. Usually, if there's two, at least one of them is wrong, and you find something else that you design sort of offhandedly without thinking about it, like as, oh, this is obviously how this should work, and the people who play it will be like, oh, this is really great, how did you come up with it? And you shift your focus and move around and try to decide whether the thing that you stumbled upon is now what you want to do, or whether the old thing that you originally were attached to is what you want to do. I actually found an old prototype, like one of the first ones that I did the other day, and like had to go find the rules printout that I had for it to figure out what any of it meant. <laughs> so, so different. It used to be that when you claimed quests, some of them would give you these things called favors that were like cards that you could use to bribe other players to pay for your quests for you if you were out of money or out of food to pay for them yourself. Where did the original theme idea come from? A role-playing game, actually, one where a bunch of people were playing different nobles. Uh, It was actually a live-action role-playing game called Second Dawn. There were a bunch of us playing different nobles. Our monarch had died, the king had died, and we were all negotiating with threats of warfare and little like skirmishes taking place sort of off-table around our discussions. 
I had this sense as I was sitting there that it's like, you know, the more everybody around me is going to come after me, there's not really going to be like a leader. So I need to hang back and I need to get a bunch of stuff lined up to make a bunch of grabs quickly and then defend myself from what all of my rivals, who are not currently my rivals, as long as I'm not beating them, are going to do. I think on a drive home from one of the events, I was just sitting there thinking about what my character was going to do, what I was going to do to try to like win this thing. I just sort of started visualizing the system for the game that is now Crown of Exile. Well, during that evolution process, was there ever a mechanic that you were pretty fond of that didn't end up making it in the game that maybe you'll polish up and turn into something else? Yeah, actually, that one I just mentioned, trading favors, uh, I think it was pretty interesting having this thing happen where when you did something good, even though it put you at risk, you would get something that potentially allows you to offset that risk if you could find somebody who wanted it. So all of these favor things were very specific. Like, I'd get one that was like a political marriage card, and you know, I could give this to somebody and they would get a percentage of my victory points. So that's good, but it requires that I have enough actual victory points to do something with it, or that I have somebody who's sort of then willing to look at that and go, you know, I'll be taking this advantage from you, but it really behooves me to not attack you for the rest of the game if I've accepted this political marriage that you're offering me. There's just so many of these interesting things that were sort of these non-zero sum or like variable value things based on who you offered them to. And I think that there's potentially maybe not a whole game in there, but certainly a mechanic that I will try to bring into something in the future because trading is really fun. And the more you have to think about what something is worth to you and the more it has a different value to somebody else that could change over time, the more interesting it becomes. Well, you mentioned this game previously had a different name. So talk about Crown of Exile, the name. How did that come about? What does it mean? So the fluff for the story, the the description, the storyline is about a bunch of nobles who are basically outcasts who have either been removed from their nation or have fallen into disfavor. And as a result, when tragedy strikes the kingdom, they are kind of the only survivors. So the idea is that they're now competing for the crown. So it's a bunch of exiles or uh, outcasts who are trying to take this thing on. And it's sort of just the phrase sounded pretty solid to us. I'm kind of a geek and I'm a Euro gamer, so I still really like the name Interregnum just because it's Latin and it specifically refers to this period of time when, you know, that's between kings. I just feel like we got a lot of feedback where people either couldn't remember the name, didn't know what it meant, and then when we kind of explained the theme, they were like, oh, that's really cool, but I had no idea what that was from the name. And then when we showed up at Boston Fig last year with Crown of Exile, people were like, oh, cool name. So... I don't know. I feel like I compromised on that one. The people who I work with really like Crown of Exile as a name. Like that was a discussion and somebody else came up with it. But if you had your druthers, you'd go back. If I could change everybody's taste and if I could make the whole world know a little bit more Latin so that they knew what Interregnum was, then sure. I could still think Interregnum is a little bit more of a slick name. In the era of Kickstarter, you can't get away with calling something Agricola because nobody knows what that means. Um, <laughs> you have to call a game just epic or tiny epic kingdoms or like if you can get like the more exciting words you can get into your game title the more it will stand out there even if it's mechanically not that sort of game well you mentioned you took this to the boston convention uh how many people have you played this with oh my god uh hundreds we brought this to boston fig we had it at pax last year as interregnum that was in a very early state we brought it to gen con last year and if anybody here's a Boston, anybody listening to Boston local, Aviary Games hosts a pub night once a month, which is not just our games. Like we have my I bring half the room that I'm sitting in, like 40 or 50 or 60 games out to the Asgard and Central Square. And we play games and we usually have stuff that we're demoing too. So like I've lost count. 
my fellow aviary games folks have demoed it i have a guy on the west coast who brings it to game nights on and off it's like a lot a lot of people which is for something for a game as complicated as this with as many different possible mechanics is like pretty crucial for getting the balance right the mechanics don't shift a lot but it's like whether something costs two or three gold on this card could be the difference of like a totally broken combination that we do not want in the game or not did you ever get any feedback from a playtester that you totally weren't expecting oh yeah all the time it comes in a bunch of different categories. There's people who took a bunch of cards that I was like considering cutting because they seemed worthless and beat everybody in a way that made everybody at the table angry. <laughs> the feedback that surprises me is the number of people who've played who are not Euro gamers, who are not into the economics heavy stuff that have played this game along with people who are Euro gamers who are then like, this is really solid. I don't usually like games that are this sort of numbers heavy. And I think that there's a little bit of like the core rules are simple enough. I think that's sort of what that proves. But I was kind of not feeling like that was going to be possible when I started designing this game. I was actually approaching it with a lot of trepidation. And, you know, I left it complicated and hearing that the first few times surprised me enough that I started to look into like, okay, how can I actually simplify this a little bit more? Because this might be like an interesting gateway between these two groups of gamers. That's the thing that keeps happening that surprises me. Nobody's given me anything that's like totally off kilter. We get the occasional person who's a Euro gamer who plays the version where attacking is permitted, who then just leaves the table like totally enraged because somebody <laughs> attacked them and they were sitting there focused on building their perfect engine and didn't anticipate somebody coming in and kicking over their sandcastle. <laughs> that's why we developed what we call the pacifism version of it. Right. Just for those people. Yeah, and there's a fair number of them. Most of them don't mind if they can get attacked, but they would prefer to play a game where it's just who can build the best thing and not who can build the best thing while kicking over everybody else's thing. So you've been on Kickstarter now for, what, about a week and a half or so? Tomorrow will be a week, actually. How's it going? It's great. I think we're close to 140% as of right now. We had a huge uptake in the first 48 hours, and it started to you know taper off as it does. I mean, I feel really good about it. We've got a bunch of stretch goals up. We've added better quality meeples. We're adding some like mini expansions in the solitaire version of it that I have really, really liked and really, really wanted to fully develop. And I think might even be the basis for a co-op version if we get enough funding that I can set aside the, the time and resources to run that many more play tests during the ramp up. I don't know. It's, it's great. It's awesome. And I'm like feeling very supported. It's a lot harder to be on Kickstarter now than when I did Alchemy. You know, I did some stuff to hedge my bets here. Like, it's not a coincidence that, you know, we're going to be at PAX, and it's not a coincidence that the last weekend of the Kickstarter is also PAX weekend. We're going to be trying very hard to get people who come by our booth to demo this and consider backing it in the last 72, 96 hours. So what do you contribute that success to? We had Alchemy. I think this is a big part of it. You know, 15, 1,600 people have purchased that game. We have the ability to hit them via Kickstarter updates. We have email addresses for a lot of them and everybody who play tested. And I think that you want kind of like a Kickstarter assisted network effect, if you're familiar with the phrase. They want to feature games that they see do really well right out of the gate. If you can mobilize people quickly, which we managed to do just because we have access to this big mailing list and you know, we also advertised on BoardGameGeek and did everything within the first 48 hours, we got one of those little games we love stickers from them or whatever it is, badges. And that means that we're on the front page about half the time if you go to board games, which means we're highly visible. And that's really sort of like the name of the game. And I also think good art is really key. 
most people who look at your project have no idea who you are unless you're you know a big name publisher which of course happens all the time and the only thing you can do to prove credibility and prove that you can make a good game is show them which means like if i i guess if i came to a kickstarter page and the art didn't look good and didn't look professional it would make me wonder even if i didn't think about it in this exact way whether the people making it understood what a finished game ought to look and feel like in other ways as well I think the more, not necessarily slick, but the more complete your presentation looks, the better off you are on Kickstarter. So I think we did a pretty good job. I, you know, I don't want to sound too full of myself here, but I feel really, really good about the way that the page looks and the box art, which we actually got done at the last minute, I think is like great. I think we just made a good pitch and had a good push in the first 48 hours. So at this stage, then what's keeping you up at night? whether I'm going to hit my next stretch goal and whether I've done my math right and whether my next stretch goal is going to cost me more money than I made on Kickstarter, which <laughs> totally happened in Alchemy. I like overpromised. I didn't factor a bunch of stuff. That, that game has glass beads in it and wound up being like three and a half pounds per box as opposed to I think most board games are under a pound. Shipping that was really, really expensive. I know that's a cliche. I didn't think about shipping, but I really, really messed myself up with that. And I'm kind of like, every time I go back to the page, I sit there and wonder like, all right, what's the glass beads of this project? What did I do totally wrong here that's going to be a problem? That's what keeps me up. Now that it's hit its funding, it's kind of like, okay, what did I overlook? And then, of course, there's always that like creator nightmare, like I'm going to post an update and I'm going to say one thing slightly wrong and every single backer is going to pull in the last 24 hours to a single project ever. But somehow I'm going to be the first. Well, that will be the show. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm going to point out some rule that I'm really proud of that I neglected to mention in the... Right. They'll be like, what the? They'll be like, that's stupid. We're not back in the game. (laughs) Like one piece of art that, uh, you know, looks looks funny out of context and people will be like, oh, no, we don't, we don't want this anymore. <laughs> Never happened. Right. Yeah, not going to happen. Well, now it's going to happen now that I've said it's not going to happen. Well, let's hope not. So you mentioned you have all these stretch goals, but of course there's that concern that a stretch goal might push you over in a weight limit or it'll cost you more than you think it will. How do you balance that as you're designing your stretch goals? Getting a lot of quotes and irritating the crap out of your potential manufacturers. <laughs> So that you have like a bunch of people's best guesses as to how much these things are going to cost. And that's it. That's all you can do. I've already had a backer suggest something, specifically the the co-op version of the game, which I was always kind of thinking about since I started developing the solitaire version, because that sort of one player co-op, you're not competing with anybody in that version either. And a backer came on and was like, you know, I think this would make a really cool co-op game. And I was sitting there like, I also think that. And now I'm sitting here wondering if maybe around forty or 50000 I should put that in as a stretch goal and maybe take some additional time off of other projects to really <laughs> dig into this and see if I can make that game. But it's a little bit risky because I wouldn't want to say I can do it and put something together that is not really great. So that means that actually that's what's keeping me up at night now is like I've already got even over the last week, 20 or 30 pages worth of spreadsheets and other documents where I started to dig into this thing and kind of do like a proof of concept because I basically just need to prove if the most simple of a co-op version of this works, then that means that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how long, which means, you know, worst case scenario, if I tell my backers that I am going to do this, that it's just going to mean I'm going to have to take months off of other projects instead of weeks in order to deliver it on time. But I think if I can get to the point where I have a prototype of the co-op game and the campaign isn't over yet, and the co-op has not broken after five or ten playtests, I think that I will probably throw that up as a stretch goal. Well, out of curiosity, why a stretch goal? Why not uh, an addition to the game eventually? 
you mean like another Kickstarter project or right, yeah, right. an additional purchase? I mean, so if it doesn't happen and I've got this co-op game and I feel really good about it and Crown of Exile does well, I would almost certainly do, okay, this is the co-op expansion. Sure. Uh, I'm already planning an expansion for Alchemy because, you know, I feel like that's done pretty well and I've got ideas for an expansion. There's certainly no reason not to do it. But, you know, I want this game to do well. This isn't like my primary source of income. This is something that I do for fun. And I'm mostly in it because I want to design games and hear people say nice things about them and enjoy them. Everybody who's backing me on Kickstarter is putting a lot of faith in me. And I feel like the more I can reward that and the more my economies of scale get better as I get more backers and the more I can afford to include in this game, the more I should, because it means that people will hopefully remember that next time and then want to back my next project because they know that it'll get a ton of extra cool stuff if it hits all its stretch goals. So now that you're a massively successful game designer, what advice do you have for an aspiring designer who's trying to get into your shoes? I was on a panel at PAX last year and somebody said that ideas are cheap and that's very true. So I don't know if that's advice exactly, but it's something to keep in mind. Don't forget that. If you have a good idea for a game, sit down and prototype it as quickly as possible. Get it out. Make it be real in whatever way you can very quickly because sitting around with a good idea for a game is not very meaningful until you've actually put the something to the something else. I don't have a metaphor for that, but we've <laughs> actually put something together. And you learn a lot by doing that. And once you've done that, don't be too attached to your original idea and be prepared to hear people tell you that something that you didn't think was the most fun thing about the game is fun. Don't self-publish unless you have decent savings. <laughs> your game might weigh three and a half pounds and you might be on the hook for that. Oh, the sad realities of it. Yeah. Self-publishing is tough, and if you can avoid it, you should. Out of curiosity, why did you go the self-publishing route? I have a business degree, and I felt really cocky about my ability to succeed where others had failed. (laughs) I also, as I mentioned, I got laid off right at the start of, that was sort of the thing that made me want to make alchemy a reality, so I was kind of like, you know, I'm just going to do this. I think I've got a handle on this. I think I know what to do. I think I know what's what in terms of this manufacturing and shipping thing, in terms of dealing with these factories. And in fact, I guess I figured out that I had messed up earlier than I otherwise might have without all of those tools, but it didn't save me. It just meant that I you know, saw the iceberg I was about to hit a little early. And now that I've done it, actually, so this might be like, remember I said this because uh, I might be kicking myself again in 10 months, but <laughs> I think that having gone through it once and having made all of those mistakes, I'm actually now very well prepared to not make them again. So once you've gone through it and made all of those very, very expensive mistakes, you cross that threshold and it seems like you can do your math better, you can predict your costs better, you can avoid the silly little things that seem like they don't even matter, but ultimately tens of thousands of dollars of your money hang in the balance. We'll see. We'll see. Again, there might be a glass beads in this game as well. Right. Yeah. I look forward to our conversation in 10 months when you tell me all the new things that you learned. Yep. I'm sure there will be a bunch. I'm sure that anybody who listens to people talk about making board games on Kickstarter has heard this. But if anybody listening hasn't, Stonemaier Games has a really excellent blog. They did Euphoria and Viticulture and they're doing Scythe now. They basically put out 100% of every single thing that has ever happened to them on Kickstarter. Arguments with backers, arguments with manufacturers, things that went well, how they got a distributor, how they got a publisher. Really seriously, if anybody is thinking about getting into putting board games on Kickstarter, self-publishing or not, they should read through as much of that as they can bear because it is tons of great information. It's everything you need to know about this stuff. Well, Michael, I have to confess, the real reason we brought you on to Your Tables on Fire was to play the game design challenge. 
Oh boy. Here's how this works. I'm going to give you a game theme and then chew it over a little bit and then pitch back to me a game. Oh my God. All right. You you up for that? Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to pick a theme at random. And that theme is going to be bed and breakfast. Bed and breakfast. Okay. Huh. This sounds to me like a a combination either it's a re, it sounds like a resource management and drafting game to me. It sounds like you have in a bunch of competing bed and breakfasts that people have that they can build different additions onto and you know draft from a bunch of different tiles to assemble these bed and breakfasts that have different numbers of room, different features, different themes, etc. You start out with something very basic, and over the course of the game, a central row of cards comes out that indicate different potential clients. And sort of similar to Boss Monster, they will come to your bed and breakfast and patronize it if it has free rooms and if it has the highest rating and whatever it is that they value most. So actually, I take it back. I guess this isn't really a drafting game. It's probably, I would go with something like a very simple version of Castles of Mad King Ludwig to build your little bed and breakfast. And probably your patrons would give you money based on what features you're offering and how high you rate and the things that are important to them. So if somebody really values, let's say... um, antiques or um wilderness themed decor and you have a high rating in that the rating in that would determine how much you get from that particular patron and you could then turn around to either add new rooms or improve rooms that you have or else put it into your food budget which would provide various different bonuses depending on what breakfast you place at various different points in time how are you interacting with the other players you know there's, there's got to be a way to screw over your neighbor You're drafting from a collective set of tiles in order to build your bed and breakfast. And you see the patrons that are coming and are essentially competing with them. So this would be, again, more of a Euro-style, no direct competition sort of thing. You're basically competing to take things before your opponents do. But since bed and breakfasts don't, to the best of my knowledge, have um, rating parties or anything like that, I think I would go with that straightforward theme there. Although that would be a good expansion. (laughs) The rating party expansion. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, uh, loot and pillage. I think I would stick with the sort of passive competition that actually exists in bed and breakfasts. That sounds like a, you know, a, a kind of an interesting game. Actually, yeah, you throw. Yeah. I don't know. I might play it once if it existed. <laughs> play anything once, though. That's that's right. You got to give it a try. Yeah. And and who knows? Maybe it might be the the world's best game. It's yeah. hard to say. So that's actually what's going to keep me up tonight. Is you saying that. like anytime anybody puts anything like that to me, or I observe a bed and breakfast and wonder how they make money it turns into a board game in my head. (laughs) Yeah, that would be the real twist, is you're not actually profitable in any way, shape, or form. Like, you're constantly losing money. So it's actually, yeah, you're lucky if you, you you basically win if you don't have a negative score. That's it. (laughs) Exactly. It's the last person to not go to bankruptcy. You win. (laughs) Good job. No, you could have special, and it's, they're mostly run by, like, retirees, right? You could have special power cards that are basically, like, what's your pension like? (laughs) Right. Like if you fall asleep at 2 p.m., then you miss out on the clientele. Okay, I'm sold. Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And all the best of luck with your Kickstarter project, Crown of Exile. Yeah, uh, and I'll let you know in a few months once I realize what I messed up in terms of pricing for this. I'm looking forward to hear about the glass beads. Well, that was Michael Kanerick, the founder of Aviary Games and the designer of Crown of Exile. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. Follow us on Twitter at TableFire. And also check out our website. That's www.yourtablesonfire.com. 
You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Board Game Geek. Hit us up on one of those sites and give us a five-star review. Well, until next time, we'll see you later.